1: Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University.
0: Hi, welcome to our Wednesday edition of the Politics Guys. Uh, it's Jay here. And and we've got something sort of special on tap today. Uh, my interview with uh, Congressman Jim Jordan uh, of Ohio And and this is special to me because uh, I actually worked with Jim years ago uh, when he was a freshman legislator uh, in the Ohio House of Representatives. And I I was a staff member Uh, and and really, um, you know, some he was he was an impressive figure then and impressive now. And whether you agree with him uh, now and I didn't agree with him all the time then and I I don't necessarily agree with all the time now, he is. Uh, he has uh, always been a, a man of integrity and uh, someone who I think is worth listening to. And we thought that uh, it would be great to uh, have him on our show. Um, but, Mike, first, I mean, we're going to talk about how uh, we, we've, we've gotten here where we have the Freedom Caucus uh, in the, in the um, House, uh, which Mr. Jordan is a, a co-founder of um and and its impact and its kind of place historically uh this is this is sort of a, a different moment uh that we've had there've been sort of um oh, i i guess you'd call them uh what what, what would you what would you call them like uh, not not insurrections um but always sort of uh, factions of of a party sure uh, perhaps that might split off into their own party well i mean uh, historically but but rarely go ahead
1: I've said, yeah, and, and certainly this is a case of that because the Freedom Caucus being a relatively new thing formed in, you know, just a few years ago in, in 2015, and they were an offshoot of the Republican Study Committee, which uh, right now the Republican Study Committee, they're, they're sort of, the Republican Study Committee was founded in the early 70s, and they basically were designed to be kind of a a, a place where the more kind of socially conservative uh, Republicans in Congress could sort of have their own forum, and so that was kind of carved out. And then uh, the Freedom Caucus is sort of a, a rump group, if you will, of that. And there, I think right now there are like thirty-one members of that. And so they felt like the Republican Study Committee was not sufficiently advancing what they probably call the Freedom Agenda, what I would call the seriously libertarian, uber conservative agenda. But but you know that that's the kind of thing you get. And I think certainly it's a it's a creature of its times, as we've seen. Politics becomes so much more polarized, particularly in the House. And so I think it's just kind of a natural outgrowth of what we of the partisan uh, polarization we've seen.
0: Well, and I think it's also maybe an outgrowth of uh, the sense that a lot of Republicans have had where uh, they elect someone uh, who runs on a Republican platform uh, who then gets to Washington and it, it uh, at that point uh, becomes uh, what's known in the, 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 uh, the lingo as a rhino, a Republican in name only. Uh, and, and I think there's 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 a lot of interesting stuff that we can talk about. And we'll, we'll do this. We have a, a post interview discussion between you and I uh, about some of those issues. Um, but I think it is important that that this is a little bit of a different moment in that uh, the the issues that the Freedom Caucus uh, pushes are, are largely uh, fiscal, although many of its members are also social conservatives. Uh, but it's it's, you know, a closer outgrowth, I think, to the Tea Party movement. Uh, that brought in a lot of uh, fiscal conservatives uh, to Washington in the the, uh, mid-2000s. But uh, before we get to that, uh, I think we should hear from our first sponsor and then on with the interview.
1: By now, you know that Dollar Shave Club ships amazing razors for a few bucks. I mean, the name's sort of a giveaway, right? And Jay and I have both used Dollar Shave Club for a while, and you've heard us say all sorts of good stuff about it. Now, what you might not know, and I didn't even know it until recently, is that Dollar Shave Club – now also has products for all sorts of other personal grooming needs. I mean, body wash, shampoo, hair gel, even lip balm. And, and really that's pretty great because you'll get the same high quality as their razors, great pricing and the convenience of not having to go out to the store, which, you know, I don't know about you, but when I do, I feel just assaulted by a gazillion choices and way too much marketing talk. And seriously, last month I had to find a new shampoo and I left the store feeling emotionally drained, which, okay, maybe it means I could use more sleep or something, but I mean, my God, I didn't even know where to start. Anyway, if you're like me and you're sick of the nonsense at the store, now's the time to try out Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, DSC is basically giving away their starter set to new members. For only $5, this starter set features their Executive Razor and three trial-sized versions of their most popular products that help you stay fresh and clean. In your first box, you'll get their Shave Butter, Body Wash, and One Wipe Charlie's Butt Wipes. You'll also receive their Executive Razor, which includes their premium weighty handle and the full cassette of cartridges. And after the first box, replacement cartridges are sent for only a few bucks a month. Now, this offer is exclusively available at DollarShaveClub.com slash TPG. That's DollarShaveClub.com slash TPG. Dollar Shave Club's high-quality products will have you covered from face cheeks to butt cheeks. There's no better time to try the club.
0: First of all, uh, I would like to uh, welcome to the show today a very special guest, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan uh, of the 4th District of Ohio. Uh, That's sort of a north-central Ohio. Uh, Congressman Jordan um, uh, was uh, born in Ohio, uh, in Champaign, I believe. Yeah, actually uh, born and, in uh, born in Troy, but
2: spent my whole life in Champaign County. Almost okay. Most of my grew life up in Champaign
0: County. In Champaign County. Yeah. Um, uh, attended the University of Wisconsin, uh, where you earned your uh, bachelor's in uh, economics, uh, uh, followed by a master's degree of, uh, in education from the Ohio State University, uh, and a uh, law degree uh, just after just uh, at uh, from Capital University, which is uh, just outside of Columbus. Uh, and I want to uh, let our listeners know also, um, I very much had the, the privilege of working with Representative Jordan way back when, uh, when you were a state representative uh, from that
2: district. And, and, and when you were keeping Mr. Batchelder in
0: line, right? Yes, yes. Bill great American. So, you know, I guess my, my first question, and in our show, you know, what we try to do is is get voices out there. We're not so much uh, there to to make an argument, but to have a conversation. And and, and we, we had some folks who had uh, brought up that a lot of the interviews we did were from folks on the left. So we like to get the perspective from, uh, from someone on the right. No one's ever accused me of my, being on the left, so that no yeah. one, oh, no, no one has. So I guess my my first question to you is, as the the co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, um, if you could give our listeners sort of your your unvarnished, unfiltered uh, version of uh, what the Freedom Caucus is, why it was started, and and you know why you think it's necessary. No, we got we got a we got a
2: simple uh, and basic mission statement. We think there are countless number of Americans countless number of families across this great country who feel like Washington has forgotten them our job is to remember them and fight for them we try to do it in a um, strategically and tactically smart way in a productive way but we're gonna we're gonna push even sometimes that means pushing our own leadership to to do what we told the voters we were going to do when they gave us the privilege to come here and serve in the United States Congress and it's It's really that basic. Um, And we have 30 some members who focus on that every single day we're here.
0: Okay. Um, You know, I guess my next question is how do you respond to it? Again, you get criticism. Obviously, you get criticism from the left, but uh, from sort of the mainstream center right, even. Uh, Yeah, exactly. It's not easy. Uh, And I I guess you know I'd ask you to how would how do you as a Freedom Caucus member respond to those claims that oh well look you're 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 blocking stuff up and come on let's just uh, give a little together. Well I
2: would use well first of all I'd use the example I don't think we're blocking anything I think we're making legislation better. We're the group who put the health care bill over the top in the House. Thirty two of our thirty four members voted for it after we made it better. The initial version that was introduced was not what we told the American people we were going to do. Um, so we went to work making it better, and when it passed, it was closer, still wasn't what we told them. We told them we're going to repeal it and then replace it. We should have done two pieces of legislation like we advocated at the Freedom Caucus, clear back start of this Congress, but we said if they're not going to do that, they're going to try to take elements of repeal, elements of replace, put them together. We're going to make that bill as good as we can, a bill that actually will begin to bring down premiums, and that's what we did. It passed the House. Unfortunately, um, it failed in the Senate, but in a general sense, look, the mainstream press is never going to like what we do. We just know that. I, I tell my colleagues, if the press isn't saying something bad about you, you're probably not doing anything worthwhile. So just just accept that as the fact that they may not like what we do. I don't I don't base my um, actions and what I spend our time focused on here in Congress on what the Washington Post and New York Times has to say about me. Because if I did that, I wouldn't be doing what the folks back in the 4th District of Ohio and Americans across this great country of ours sent us here to accomplish. So I just tend to focus on what did we tell the voters we're going to do? And uh, let's do that. And that's that's what the Freedom Caucus is all about.
1: You know, one thing I hate about buying tickets to live events, is the feeling that There's a better deal out there somewhere that I just haven't found. But I'm not going to spend a ton of time looking at a bunch of ticket sites either. I mean, I don't have the time or really the patience for that. And that's why I love SeatGeek. They've solved both of these problems for me. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. It only takes two taps on the SeatGeek app to buy tickets. And it's also quick and easy if you go through their website, SeatGeek.com. Now, the reason SeatGeek can give you such great deals is that they compare multiple ticket sites to find you the best deals. And then they even grade every available ticket based on value so that you can instantly see the best deals for your budget. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code Guy for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase.
0: Well, and following up from that, obviously, one of the, the big priorities of the Freedom Caucus and of conservatives in general is reining in federal spending. And last week we saw uh, a situation where uh, the uh, Trump administration uh, entered into a deal where where uh, the debt li- debt uh, limit uh, was extended uh, for three months. Um without significant um, uh, cutbacks in spending. And I know you've spoken on some of the Sunday shows uh, last week about what your vision would be as to how to use that, that debt ceiling uh, to bring federal spending back to in line w- to what it's been historically. Yeah, do what
2: we've done every other time. Almost every time you increase uh, the borrowing authority of this country, you do something to address the underlying problem. That didn't happen last week, and that's why I said it was not a good deal for the American taxpayer. Um, the plan we think makes sense is to cap spending as a percentage of GDP. Remember, Jay, today, today, the debt just went to twenty trillion. So we're now at twenty trillion. That's a lot of money. Sixty-one thousand dollars every man, woman, and child would have to pay back in order to to pay off that twenty trillion dollar burden we now have placed on on our generation and, and, and younger generations of Americans. So what we say is let's get spending back relative to the size of our gross domestic product back to its more historic norm in modern times. And that's something below 20%. Right now we're at 20.6%. It went as high as 24% of GDP in the early part of the Obama administration. So let's take it back down to where it's supposed to be. So cap all federal spending, overall federal spending as a percentage of your economy as you move forward. If you do that, I'm willing to vote to raise the debt ceiling, but I'm not willing to just vote to raise the debt. I use the example Sunday. It's like you got a kid in college, your son's in college. He's spending more than he takes in. He's already piled up a lot of debt and he just wants to be able to, for the next three months, just raise the limit on the credit card, borrow as much as he can uh, and not have to worry about it. But that's in essence what the deal is. That's not a smart plan. So let's, let's, Focus on the underlying problem when we actually increase the borrowing authority.
0: What not and not to put you too much on the spot, but what would you do? You think your your chances of getting that reduction are? I mean, do you feel you're you're in a better position now or worse position now uh, to try to get those reductions? Well, understand, we we didn't give the president any
2: good options. I mean, I, I said this, I said this yesterday, I said this morning. Um, we took a six-month, we took the longest non-election year break in, in over a decade uh, during the August recess. And the Freedom Caucus said, clear back in July, don't don't go home until we address what we're going to do on Obamacare, what we're going to do on our tax reform plan, and certainly don't go home until uh, we, we have a plan on the debt ceiling. Uh, we all knew this debt ceiling increase was coming. The Treasury Secretary had said for months— that September 30th was when he what this was gonna come due, so we should've stayed here and, and put together a plan. So the p- options presented to Mr. Trump were a three month increase in the debt ceiling without addressing the underlying problem, or a longer period of time increasing the debt ceiling without addressing the underlying problem. Neither are good choices, because none of them address the problem, the $20 trillion debt. So that's why we gotta put together a plan. I think we can. I'm always, you know, I always tell folks, you're an American, so you gotta be optimistic. So I'm optimistic. I think we can make this work. We can come together as a conference, Republicans in the, in the Congress and put forward a plan that says cap spending relative to the size of your GDP as you move forward. And if we do that, let's increase the debt ceiling, not not, you know, do anything to hurt the markets. Uh, so let's get that done. But let's address the problem.
0: OK, and you know, another uh, again related the other side of the coin from spending, obviously, is taxes. Uh, and that's something that's that's been uh, talked about. And there's that there we're going to see some tax reform legislation uh, at some point. What would be your vision or the the, uh, uh, the Freedom Caucus's vision just as, a, as an outline for what we ought to see in tax lower reform. rates,
2: simpler, flatter, fairer? So, uh, look, on the personal side. Let's go to three, four brackets. Um, let's let's lower taxes for middle class families. Let them keep more of their money so they can chase their goals and their dreams down on the corporate side. We've got the highest corporate rate in the world. Let's go to 15 percent. Like the president has said, uh, I mean, I think our vision is is where where the White House is, where President Trump is. Uh, the low corporate rate of 15 percent. The one the one concern we have is this this talk here in Washington of revenue neutral approach to tax reform and tax cuts. Understand, Jay, revenue neutral is a Washington way of saying the tax burden stays the same. We just shift around who pays what. And in that scenario, what always happens is the connected class with all their big time lobbyists, they get a good deal and middle class families get the shaft. So forget this revenue neutral idea. I mean, again, when did Republicans adopt the premise that letting you keep more of your money is somehow a cost to the government. I just fail I just never adopted that premise. I think it's a faulty premise. It's your money. So let's let's just design a tax code that lets families keep more money and one that is conducive to producing growth in GDP, economic growth over over the long haul. You do that, you're going to get the growth you need to begin to deal with a $20 trillion debt. Would,
0: would your thoughts, and again, not to put you on the spot for a plan that hasn't been drafted yet, but uh, you know suggestions of if we cut back uh, certain tax loopholes, certain deductions, traded that for lower rates, uh, I mean, does that go into the idea of simplification that, that you? I'm mentioned? I'm fine with that, but I don't think you have
2: to do it in a revenue neutral concept where some genius at right. the CBO, yeah. which I don't always put yeah. a whole lot of stock in what the CBO says anyway, but
0: but there the, have to be so yeah. many uh, cuts for so many uh, uh, tax cuts. Yeah, but I'm for simplifying it. Of course, yeah. we want it, we do want to be able to do your
2: personal taxes on. On the personal side of the ledger, you do want to be able to do that on a postcard. Keep a few basic deductions, um, you know, dependents of pro-family deductions, uh, personal and, and, and dependent deductions. Keep the mortgage interest, keep charitable, and then make it, here you go, fill it out, few, few, few brackets, and uh, make it as simple as possible. I'm all for that. But don't get locked into this revenue neutral world that, that so many in Washington want to uh, want to focus on.
0: That it has to be sort of a one for one, or at least a one for one, as they don't want yeah. Um, you know, one more uh, topic that, and this is an issue that you've been uh, really out in front on over the past uh, four or five years, uh, is is government accountability and bureaucratic accountability, and I'm thinking specifically of the IRS and the lowest learner situation. Um, you know, recently, uh, Jeff Sessions uh, indicated that uh, he did not uh, intend to prosecute. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what happens next and, and what can uh, what will you continue to do? What can um, Congress do? to do? No, you're, you're, you're right. I, I thought
2: that was unfortunate. Um, we'll, we'll have a chance to talk to the Justice Department about why they made that decision. But I think the, in the more general sense, Jay, and this is this is important. There's a couple of things that really make voters mad. One is when politicians say one thing at election time, get in office and do something else. Like we saw in Obamacare with six United States senators, Republican United States senators, 18 months ago voting to repeal Obamacare. They had that same piece of legislation in front of them and they voted the other way. That drives voters crazy. But the other thing that drives them crazy and and appropriately so is this idea that there's a double standard there's two standards. There's one standard of justice for you and me, but if your name is Clinton, Comey, Lynch, Lerner, there's a different standard. So we have called for a special counsel to look into Clinton, Comey, Lynch, Clinton Foundation, Fusion GPS, all this stuff that went on. If we're gonna if we're gonna have a special counsel to look into uh, potential impact of uh, the Russia may have had on our election, then I say let's get all the truth out there for the American people.
0: And, I say, and just so our listeners know, yeah, Fusion GPS is the group that hired the uh, uh, person, the the British. Uh, ex yeah, to do the dossier that sort of launched so much of the uh, resume. Yeah, let's get all the facts out there. So, so think about this.
2: Uh, I know you're a sharp legal mind. So in the summer of 2016, why? Why in the summer of 2016 would the Attorney General tell the FBI Director to call the Clinton investigation a matter, not an investigation? Why would she do that? I mean, last time I checked, James Comey wasn't the Director of the Federal Bureau of Matters. So why would she do that? Why would the Attorney General in the summer of 2016 uh, one day before the Benghazi report was going to come out, three days before Secretary Clinton was scheduled to be interviewed by the FBI, why would the attorney general meet with former President Bill Clinton on the tarmac at the Phoenix airport? Why would she do that?
0: And why, well, she, her, she, she said uh, to uh, talk about grandchildren. Right. So, so <laughs> you, you probably saw the story just a couple weeks ago, Jay. Why,
2: why would uh, in, in the days after that meeting on the tarmac when Attorney General Lynch is communicating with the public relations people at the Justice Department – Via email, why in her emails would she use the name Elizabeth Carlisle and not use her real name? I mean, if you're just like you said, if you're just talking about golf and grandkids, why do you have to use a fake name? And why, why, in the, why would Cheryl Mills get the greatest immunity deal in history as Secretary Clinton's chief of staff? And why, as we found out just last week, was James Comey drafting an exoneration letter about Secretary Clinton before the investigation was even completed and before she was even interviewed? Now, why would all those things happen again in the summer of 2016? What could be going on in the summer of 2016 that was so important that these kind of things would go on in our Justice Department? Seems to me they were probably trying to influence the presidential election. So if we're going to have a special counsel look at possible Russian influence in the election, I think we've got to look at. What looks very clear to me as Obama administration, Justice Department trying to influence the 2016 presidential election. So this is this bugs America. I hear it every single day across our district, this idea that there's a standard that exists for us regular folks, but a different one for the connected class. And that is it's supposed to be equal treatment under the law. And we think we should get the answers. To these
0: important questions. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, this is something I bring up on our show a lot: is uh, that uh, as as a conservative, and whether someone is a conservative or a liberal, these are issues that go to sort of civil liberty issues and the 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 reach of the government into. Uh, your ability to elect people, your ability to uh, to to speak and so forth. And it ought to be something that is is uh, receive some sort of some broad support, not just from conservatives, but yeah, uh, across the across board. the board. I mean, this is when you're talking about basic equal treatment of the law, basic civil liberties. Right. I mean, and we talk about Lerner.
2: We're talking about your first amendment right to free speech. Uh, and the IRS, an agency with the power and the clout and the influence on, on people's lives that the IRS has uh, was was systematically and for a sustained period of time trying to limit your political free speech rights, that is just fundamentally wrong. And so all these things are important. And I hear about all the time from our, our, our constituents.
0: So, well, I, I know you are an incredibly busy person, so I'm, I'm going to let you go. But if there's anything else you wanted to add uh, or just say to, to our listeners, uh, uh, I you know, we're, we're happy to we're happy to do it. And we're, we're happy to have you on the show again. Well, anytime. We, well, I
2: appreciate the opportunity, appreciate the good work you're doing. And uh, thanks for having me on today. But I do got to run. So take care, Jay. Great. Thanks, you got, you, thank you, Congressman.
1: So, you know, Jay, I really thought it was, I thought it was great, a really refreshing change, not just, but probably for our listeners too, who are probably sick of me interviewing everyone. I thought it was great that uh, you got to interview someone that you, you know, really, uh, I think it's fair to say you admire Jim Jordan. Yeah. I do. Yes, in. absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and,
1: I, and, and, I, and so, you know, there, there were a couple of things that stood out to me, I guess. Um. One thing is that, that the whole idea of freedom in the Freedom Caucus, to me, based on what I know about the Freedom mm-hmm. Caucus and what I heard in the interview, is freedom seems to be all about freedom from government. Um, And hey, that's fine, but, you know, that's only one formulation of freedom, obviously. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I think certainly you can make a case that sometimes government is too intrusive, but... You know, I'm also for things like freedom from well, oh, I don't know, rapacious, unregulated credit rating agencies, or uh, uh, poor and sick people having the freedom to go to a doctor and not have to say, well, should I go to the doctor or should I get food for my kids, that sort of thing. And you know, that's that's part of a larger argument, obviously. But the point being is that. And of course, it's a branding issue, right? I mean, you know, they're there for a specific understanding, a libertarian understanding of freedom, allowing people to do what they want with their lives. And it's, you know, and that's one one understanding of freedom, FDR back in, you know, the the day had a very different liberal understanding of freedom. And I'm not making a case for which one is better. I think there's a place for both of them, but it's clearly very focused on shrinking government, basically. Would you say that's correct? And and
0: I think I think something that, you know, Congressman Jordan pointed out is, you know, the the goals of the Freedom Caucus. And again, I I think if you look back to uh, the Constitution and and the Bill of Rights, uh, there was great. Care put into uh, creating that freedom from government uh, that that was that was a, a really a concern at the founding, um, uh, you know the idea that uh, and it's it's often you know stated as look the government that can give you everything can also uh, take uh, take everything away without getting into our underlying ideological disagreements I, I think what what a lot of what I got from uh, Congressman Jordan. Uh, was that what the Freedom Caucus wants is for Republicans to keep the promises that they campaigned on. Uh, And so often you have Republican candidates who campaign on that smaller government, less taxes, less intrusive uh, agenda, but then when they actually get to Washington, uh, are are happy to to uh, compromise, uh, and I mean, maybe compromise isn't isn't the right word. Uh, uh, some might say capitulate. Um, but but just the, the concern that that a lot of Republicans have had. This was this happened during the, the George uh, W. Bush administration. That look, even when you've got a a so-called conservative in the White House and you've got conservatives uh, majorities in Congress, uh, in many cases, spending continues to rise. New entitlements are created. And, and there really isn't ever that that pushback, that that pullback uh, to rein in spending, uh, and I think that's that's one of the the goals and one of the guiding. F- you know, principles of, of the uh, Freedom Caucus is that, look, if we're going to campaign on these issues, then we're going to govern that way, too.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I think that was obviously something that he started out with, that idea about the debt ceiling. I thought it was an interesting suggestion he made that, that he would be in favor of capping spending as a percent of GDP. I believe he said it was 20 percent that stuck in my mind, because I think that was actually something that Mitt Romney uh, might have campaigned on back when he was running for president. And that would, I mean, if you take a look at, uh, uh, over time at you know spending as a percent of GDP. I mean, we tend to, in, in recent history, really since the 1980s, we've been slightly over 20%. For a while there in the 2000s, we dipped a little bit under. But in right now, I think we're at just over, or right around 20% of GDP. So what it seemed to me, I guess what I was struck by was that, What he's saying isn't nearly as radical as I would have expected from a Freedom Caucus person. So that kind of, it seemed almost more reasonable. I think it's a bad idea, but it seemed like a more reasonable bad idea than I expected from him. So there was that. You know, what, what did you think about that?
0: Yeah, ex- exactly. A- and again, what what we're talking about is, uh, um, you know, that, that <laughs> I think he said it's about was about 22 percent uh, of GDP is where we are now. And that's even with, you know, the big bump that occurred in, in uh, 2008. Um, but but again, contrast that to any time there's discussion of any kind of cuts, sort of the, the wailing and gnashing of teeth that, that you hear. Of uh, uh, you know, people are going to be thrown in the streets and and so forth. Uh, if we have even these these uh, marginal cuts, or sometimes it's even just a matter of cuts in growth, because again, you could still even have uh, growth in spending as long as you have a, a, a commensurate growth in in GDP uh, that keeps those those uh, that you know ratio in in place. And what
1: what I one thing that um, I, I you know, liked, the other thing I, I said one thing I liked about that is that I think it's a lot smarter to to tie these things to something like GDP, as opposed to what I've heard from, you know, some other conservatives before about this idea of a balanced budget amendment, which I think is, it it gives you a lot less flexibility and just is a really bad idea for a lot of reasons, Um, you know, uh, but... But this, like I said, seems, you know, fairly reasonable. I just pulled up data from the Federal Reserve and they said in 2016, which is the last year we have data on, federal spending was 20.68% of GDP. So that's, you know, that's not a lot. And obviously GDP is pretty large. And so even a part of a percent is a, you know, a significant change. But but still, this isn't some kind of crazy, insane sort of proposal. And I give him credit for that.
0: Yeah, well, that's nice to hear from, uh, from a man of... of uh... <laughs> You're standing. Uh, you know the other um, uh, issue that I, I thought was interesting that we talked about is, is when we're when achieving this, and particularly in the context of a, an upcoming uh, tax plan, uh, is is how do you score these things? Um, you know, we've talked before about deficit reduction and the uh, uh, Simpson Bulls Commission uh, had the recommendation and this is years ago that uh, look here are what our tax expenditure is essentially and here's what our uh, you know revenue enhancements um, and and the idea would be if you want a budget you've got to do a one for one cut and I think there's always been some some disagreement in, in terms of are we talking about a static scoring uh, type situation versus dynamic scoring, with the idea being, when you when you cut taxes, yes, you may have a a dip in uh, in revenue initially, but uh, you you make that up uh, more so uh, by increases in spending and, and in commercial activity. This is the the so-called uh, Laffer curve uh, of of the 1980s. Um I know you don't you wouldn't like that but but I mean that's essentially what what we're talking about and uh I thought that was that was uh you know and I just like be interested in in you know your take on on what about that if if we were to restructure something where it's not a one for one um uh, reduction you know for every a dollar of, of uh, you know, taxes that that are reduced. We have to make that up somewhere else.
1: I think, I think there are a couple of related issues here. For for one, I, I, at least in part agree that, that it certainly is possible that by implementing what, what Jim Jordan and other folks would call pro growth, uh, lower tax policies, that you actually make up for at least part of what you lose in enhanced growth. And that's kind of what the, to a ridiculous extreme, that whole Laffer curve, which has been, at least to its extent, has been uh, discredited uh, pretty pretty roundly by economists. But but the underlying point, there's something to it, is that you need to...
0: Well, I would say to the extent economists have discredited it, the well, 1980s and 1990s, 1990s have, have credited it. But, well, yeah. well, no,
1: that's uh, you're, you're entirely wrong there. But if the point the word, being is credited. that Tax cuts do not pay for themselves. That's a ridiculous argument. But uh, in any case... It's still true that tax cuts, while they don't pay for themselves, certain types of tax cuts will give you advantages, so that you can't just say, "Well, we're losing X dollars in revenue." Because if people are actually paying, make more money they pay more in taxes, even at a lower rate. So there's there's something to be said
0: there. It's right. just that it, it, even even the most hardcore Keynesian uh, ec- economist, I think, would, would agree that tax cuts have the the uh, again, assuming they're properly targeted and so forth, uh, uh, produce an economic boost.
1: Well, yeah, they they might say that they would not they would not necessarily agree that they produce the boost that offsets the revenue lost from the cut. In fact, they wouldn't say that. But but you know, I think the related issue is one term that I heard him say almost like a mantra was no revenue neutrality when he was talking about tax cuts. You know, he was talking about that fifteen percent corporate rate that President Trump wants that he's not going to get. But in any case. You know, and I think to me, that's sort of a Trojan horse because my sense, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but my sense is sort of what Jim Jordan and the Freedom Caucus want is... They're interested in, bottom line, shrinking government. And so revenue neutrality means that there's no shrinkage of government. It just kind of shifts things around and so forth. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, and then he didn't actually say that, but I'm sure that's what he meant is that we want government to be smaller, providing fewer services to fewer people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, and I think this is, and again, to me, that's, you know, a welcome message into a lot of Republicans. I mean, there was a, uh, Governor George, uh, George Voinovich of Ohio um, uh, used to say that, you know, his goal was to do uh, more with less. And, and often, you know, some conservatives would respond to that saying, no, our, you know, the the goal ought to be to do less. I mean, uh, the idea that you want a government that does more, uh, is, is sort of antithetical to conservatism. And the idea being that, uh, look, the, the more we get government out of the way, then the more, uh, uh, the private sector, uh, and, and other non-government entities can, can grow, the more room they have to operate. So, I mean, I, I I'm, I'm, you know, I think you, you got, it, and I'm, I'm happy that I think, Uh, you know, whether you agree with uh, Congressman Jordan's message or not, I I think he he did a good job explaining it and and putting it out there.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, it points out that there's kind of that, that fundamental distinction. And I I talked about this earlier about, you know, what do we mean by freedom that also gets into the role of government. And, and certainly, you know, I, I I thought he, you know, he seemed like a really nice guy and earnest and all that, and did not seem like he had horns or anything like that. And, you know, and he was just, he, I think he legitimately believes that we as a country will be better off if we are free from uh, government or not totally free, but freer from government. I'm sure he'd look at his interference as whereas you know i think i and a lot of people on the left would say exactly the opposite that no we would be better off if government intervened more in certain areas to help out the the neediest and and the most uh, the most vulnerable so
0: um sure. and- uh, yeah fair, fair enough but i just want to say again uh it was really an honor uh talking to him and I'm, I'm really proud and and uh, happy that he came on our show and uh we of course invite him to come back anytime uh and uh, hopefully we're going to have more of these types of interviews uh coming up with uh, uh, with lawmakers in the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, before we close, there is one other thing I wanted to say. I wanted to get your thoughts on toward the end of your uh, interview with him. There were these kind of, I thought there were kind of these odd arguments about the Obama administration trying to improperly influence the 2016 election. I mean, he he kind of saw I, on, on the economic stuff. I was like, OK, you know, I don't agree with them here on this, really, because we have some fundamental ideological differences. But, okay, I, I, you know, this all kind of tracks for me if I accept certain basic assumptions, which I don't, don't accept. Right. But on this, he sounded kind of like a right wing, Michael Moore to me. You know, and I, I think Michael Moore, he makes me roll my eyes with his, you know, ridiculous kind of making these weird connections, tinfoil hat wearing kind of stuff. I think, you know, conspiracy theory. And well,
0: no, I gotta no, I, say I don't Jim it's a conspiracy Jordan's theory at all. And I'm, I'm yeah. happy to uh, extrapolate on that. I mean, that's th- I mean, this is something that again, and a lot of your your medium to center right uh, editorial boards have, have talked about for years. And that is that, listen, if if after, you know, in the wake of Citizens United, uh, uh, Lois Lerner uh, was, uh, or others at the IRS, were keeping conservative groups uh, on the sidelines during that election, they were unable to raise money, unable to spend money, that made a difference. And, and when the government is involved in, and again, in what appears by all I would say most, most evidence to have been a targeting of conservative groups, uh, as a, based on their, their political leanings, uh, that's, that's a problem that is government interference. Um. And I, I think there's, there's, and especially by the IRS, which is is sort of a, a powerful, uh, has the ability to to do a lot of bad things to you, either uh, monetarily or uh, uh, even criminally. Um, and there have been proposals that that maybe that authority uh, ought to be better vested uh, in the Federal Elections Commission, which is is also a run by a bipartisan commission rather than a administrator uh, who is essentially a appointed civil servant. Um but but that's i mean that's where that argument's coming from and i and i i think it's a, a legitimate argument and and many uh, on the right have, have made it that, uh, look, in the, the Romney election, a lot of these groups were, were hamstrung uh, and, and could not participate.
1: I, I think I, I certainly read those arguments and I'm familiar with those arguments. And I, I think they are incredibly uh, overstated and exaggerated. Now, that's a whole different conversation, obviously. But I also wanted to you know, get to your point on you know, that you, know, you suggested maybe vesting that kind of authority in some kind of bipartisan board. That sounds exactly like the sort of thing that somebody who wants government to be as as ineffective as possible would suggest, because the FEC, of course, is is uh, is uh, notoriously ineffective. Because when you have a board that's composed of equal numbers of partisans from both sides, whenever there's anything that's even remotely controversial, what happens is, of course, is the three Republicans vote one way, the three Democrats vote the other way, and then there is no decision. And so that's a recipe for government inaction. And so, you know, I, in specifics with the with the Lerner case, again, I, I think that's probably another, you know, another discussion for us to get into. But, but I just think maybe even more broadly that it felt to me like he was making pushing kind of a false equivalence argument what i think is a false equivalence argument that well you know this trump stuff it's similar to what the democrats are doing and to me there's a huge difference between very questionable claims of advocating for your party's candidate which is most of the stuff he was talking about the obama administration and potentially working with a hostile foreign government to plant fake news stories those things to me they're, that that's not quite as much of a false equivalence as calling the, the Antifa and, you know, and then and, and uh, neo-Nazis the same thing. But it's it's uh, you know, it's also a false equivalence. And I think that the right far too often, you know, defaults to, oh, well, you know, Obama and Clinton did this when we're talking about a difference of difference of a uh, so pretty significant difference of degree.
0: Uh well, I mean, that that remains to be seen. Let's let's wait and see sure. what the okay. uh, Russian investigation enough, un- you're right. unveils. But I, I think it, it ought to be of, of real concern to anyone – and I brought this up in the interview – when you have the, the elements of, of our government uh, trying to um, enforce the will of, of the administration, and that's, that's, that's what's different is you've got – um, And again, there were, was a lot written at the time., um, you know, did Lois Lerner do this on Obama's instructions? or or more sinister is <laughs> she just thought this would be helpful. And that's what i I think is is uh, is troubling, is Americans uh, ought not to, I mean, I, I think we certainly ought to be on guard against uh, foreign powers uh, we shouldn't have to be on guard against our own government.
1: Well, I, you know, I agree with you in principle on all those points. Actually, I think where our disagreement is, is the extent to which this actually uh, occurred in the Obama administration. And I expect I have a pretty strong agreement with Jim Jordan on that as well.
0: Well, and, and again, darn it. If, if, uh, lowest server hadn't been, uh, hadn't been, uh, destroyed, uh, erased, uh, we might know, but, uh, uh, darn it for uh, some reason uh, it, that got erased. So it, it may be we'll never know. and, and uh, as we mentioned, uh, the Justice Department uh, is has indicated it's not pursuing charges, but Congress will continue to investigate and we'll we'll see what we find out. That
1: we will. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. Dollar Shave Club. New members get Dollar Shave Club starter set featuring their executive razor, a full cassette of cartridges, shave butter, body wash, and one wipe Charlie's butt wipes for only $5 by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. And SeatGeek. Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY. You know, listener support, it's a huge help to us. We really appreciate it. And if you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, it would be great if you could share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets that we put up on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes really does help. If you've got a comment, question, correction, or just want to say some random thing to us, hey, you can email us at mail at politicsguys.com and our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week at facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.